This is Aliens and Artists, part two of our conversation with Jeremy D. Johnson. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. We begin part two by discussing the new sphere popularized by Teilhard de Chardin. The new sphere, the principle of increasing complexity and depth on Earth, encircling the planet in a higher order of being. How does that, or does that not, align with the advent of satellites girdling the globe? The new sphere, foretold as a membrane of higher consciousness, contrasting that with what we have, which feels like a planetary hairnet of infrastructure. Have we inadvertently fabricated an opportunity for non-human beings to upend the power dynamic by exploiting that net? What's the risk of this dark new sphere being commandeered by non-human entities? Richard Dolan has spoken about this in length and detail. Can you speak to the contrast between the promise of the new sphere versus what we actually have today? And how do both of those relate to our collective vulnerability regarding the presence of technologically advanced non-human intelligences? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, that's a, that's a deep question. Um, I, I think uh, maybe to start uh, with attempting to answer it is, is getting a sense of um, how Tehard understood the new sphere. Um, and, and he didn't necessarily say it wasn't going to have some kind of material expression. Um, In fact, he commented quite a bit in the early and mid 20th century on how what we would today and academics might today called call, you know, globalization, modernization, industrialization, uh, uh, free market economies, imperialism, et cetera, were all kind of part of, you know, this imperfect way in which human beings were, wrapping themselves up together in this in this technological surround which could become a more as you said you know a more positive or spiritual expression of human convergence right there's that famous line that flannery o'connor borrowed from from uh, uh tehard everything that rises must must converge and so there's always been this interesting relationship between the material and technological and the intensification of consciousness. Um, this is, this is Tehard's entire cosmology. He, he kind of begins his, his most central work, the phenomenon of man or the human phenomenon uh, in a more recent translation as you know, the, the, that complexity and consciousness requires some kind of material corollary corollary in that we need a nervous system. We need the complexification of the nervous system to generate this intensified form of waking consciousness that's able to, he calls it, fold back upon itself and become more complex. So on the one hand, we can see this digital world as as, as a way in which this proto-global brain is coalescing around itself and wrapping the earth in this material counterpart to the to the new sphere but on the other hand i think you're right to feel a sense of trepidation about how that could be used um so i would i would just say also i I think in terms of the narrative if you're worried about it being paranoid i would just say it sounds more like a science fiction it it sounds like a great sci-fi story like, you know, that the typical sci-fi story in which the human beings have been kind of planted here to be harvested, 
right? As, as a lot of kind of uh, thinkers and uh, 1970s writers about ancient astronauts uh, hypothesized, right? So, so there is there is that kind of narrative that I think is floating in in the new sphere in terms of our cultural imagination. So it's not really a big jump to consider it. And I think there's also a, a real material sense of how um, we're really at this point right now between, and I, I make, I've been using uh, Tehard's different phrase, he calls it planetization. And, and, and really that just means the process of the, the new sphere coalescing converging, actualizing, right? The, that, that spiritual process that is taking place or could take place. And I always make this distinction that we should hold that word um, um, as something different than the process of modernization and globalization, right? Like planetization does not mean capture of the world by digital neoliberalism, right? Or authoritarianism, which could very readily arise with the kinds of technologies, the economic systems, right? Um, everything else that's sort of prepped. So I guess I would be more worried about human beings hijacking this potential for the new sphere to, to create a, a new form of capture, right? Like, <laughs> like, like you're just saying, like, everything's on the grid. And that this, 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 kind of echoes back into what Gebser talks about when he's when he's making this distinction um, between the mental structure and, and the integral structure of consciousness. The, the mental structure loves grids. It wants to systematize every damn thing inside and out. It's got a map for that. And if it doesn't have a map, you bet it will go meta enough to be able to get that map. So there is this kind of doubleness, I think, in our world right now that might kind of explain the, you know, there's this beautiful spiritual potential, but then there's also this kind of darker timeline that we could go down because we're, we're wrestling with this articulation and realization of the integral world, but we're still very much predominantly situated in this mental consciousness that is using these new forces pressing upon us, these new realizations of time and space, these new networks for kind of um, anachronistic aims, right? Control, domination, systemization, um, reifying particular, uh, you know, dominator hierarchies that have existed since the beginning of the beginnings of the state, right? Like the grid, a digital grid is the, is the perfection, the apotheosis of the, the, the control of the state, right? Um, so, so there's this, like, it's yes. And it's like, yes, this is something that has wonderful potential, but unless we overcome that, that particular attitude in ourselves, which seeks to dominate and control, then it, then we're not going to get that integral world. We're not going to get time freedom, you know? And in, in the other sense, the world that we get becomes stasis. It becomes capture. It becomes like... Philip K. Dick's Black Iron Prison, um, rather than that 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 expression of freedom and, and manifold multiplicity that Gebser spoke of, or Tehard wonderfully, beautifully, poetically described as this kind of convergence of cosmic love, right, in, in the human being, the unity of of humanity in the world, and this cosmogenesis. Rather than that, we get something that looks a lot more like our world right now, unfortunately, right. So. You know, I think as we as we worry about forces from the outside that are pressing in and might 
hijack this. I think the only the only way that can truly in the most in the most thorough spiritual way happen is if we allow ourselves to be overcome um, by an attitude that doesn't have a place in the future um, as the predominant, you know, arbiter or role of, of, of human consciousness. If we can overcome that in ourselves, I think we'd be in a better position to overcome it or at least struggle with it in, 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 a, in a much healthier um, uh, uh, state of being than we would by not, right? So just to kind of wrap it up to you, I think the 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 relationship we have with technology is very interesting in that very often it seems to be an exteriorization of of uh, our own structures of consciousness right like what are we doing with these grids and these networks and and technology that that shrinks space and time right we can simultaneously instantaneously talk to one another across uh, this continent we can jump across oceans in a couple of hours like it's all very magical it's all very mythical and i think it's like it's almost sad in a way right it, it's almost like the the cartesian mental world doing its best to retrieve what it severed in the only way it knows how right the, the magical and mythical worlds are lost to the cartesian mind and the only way they bring them back is through this kind of ironic replication of them in 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 the most material, physicalist sense, right? So I think there's an interesting kind of mirror here with technology and the the, the inner state of the human being. And, and one of the things Gepser like cryptically hints at towards the end of ever-present origin in a very kind of Tehardian way, he says, you know, just as the mythical world retracted agency and archetype or and gods in the pantheon of all the wonderful participatory cosmologies we had in the in the pre-modern world just as that was sort of retracted into the self right and became psychology and became you know oh you know that that thing in the outer world actually has to do with your own interior state right your own egoic development and self-realization that the gods are within you right when we retract the gods within us he's saying maybe in the future Maybe the integral world will be such a world that retracts the technology in the same way. It retracts this projection of uh, this technosphere back into itself as it achieves some kind of um, uh, intensified realization, right? And it overcomes the, the overwhelming nature of the techno flood by retracting that inwardly, right? Like we have to overcome it ourselves if we ever expect to overcome it as in, in a material sense. Um, does that make sense? Completely. It's a beautiful clarification on who has access to time freedom. It evokes this distinction between facility with manipulating temporality, which we witness in abduction or contact with non-human entities, including fey encounters, that versus time freedom in the Gebserian sense. Who has access to time freedom? There's an argument to be made that humans have more access to time freedom than these non-human entities. Do greys seem like entities liberated from the stream of time or deeply entrained in it? Perhaps entrained in a more exotic register of time, but nonetheless, they don't exactly exude a sense of liberation. So their manipulation of time seems utilitarian. 
task-driven, not playful. Doesn't seem like time freedom in the Gebserian sense. I also love that you highlighted our own forfeiture of sovereignty, forfeiture of time freedom, simply through our middling daily behaviors. Let's talk about the Omega Point and the Kali Yuga. Teilhard de Chardin's Omega Point, this culminating arrival of the new sphere coalescing into the Omega Point, a second coming of Christ consciousness in our collective humanity, coupled with modern formulations such as Ray Kurzweil's Singularity, and then at the same time we have the Kali Yuga, the dumpster <laughs> fire of self-reflexivity on earth, the nadir of the grand cycles in human consciousness. So this contradiction, what's your personal sense of where we are headed? Are we moving toward the Omega Point, or are we in the bowels of the Kali Yuga? <laughs> oh man, it just hit me with these uh, <laughs> profound <laughs> questions, Stu. Uh, what, how the hell, yeah. I, so first of all, I, I think um, Kali Yuga gets a bad rap. Um, from a from a contemporary point of view, I think materialization of the spiritual is something that, say, like Sri Aurobindo, another integral uh, pillar and thinker, uh, mystic, um, had described and talked about. Um, and even in, in Gebser, or even in like uh, C.G. Jung, um, you know, in, in his in his famous essay um, "Answer to Job." Uh, I talked about this at last year's Gebser uh, conference, that there is this sort of um, coming down into earth, into embodiment, into matter, um, that I think, you know, if we are entering the age of Kali Yuga, is there a way to kind of recode that to mean creative realization in the material, right? Like the mattering of matter, like that matter matters um, in some sense. So that, that it gets a bad rep from like the, 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 the golden age because it's here that the, the most difficult and creative work can actually occur and, and the most suffering as well, right? The most difficult, arduous, it's, it, it, there's no promises that it's going to work out, you know, like there, there's so many things that could go wrong and seem so senseless, um, and are in that sense, like, like even Aurobindo described it as the ignorance as this sort of state of material reality. So there's this deep, I think there's a deep acknowledgement that, um, you know, where we are is, is extremely tenuous. Life is deeply precious. So much can go wrong. And yet, Occasionally, there are these little miraculous moments of, of love, um, of, of people you know, overcoming themselves, of things creatively coming together to produce life. You know, uh, the whole evolution of the earth is, is, is a strange kind of um, triumph of, of creative, the creative cosmos. So I, I guess with my own cos cosmology, I, I see... I see things as more of this kind of ongoing uh, creative onrush of inwardness, right? Expressions of inwardness in matter and this dynamic play and relationship between limit and possibility. So 
I don't know if we're in Kali Yuga or not, man, but I feel like, you know, the, 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 the holding both the tenuousness and the, and the catastrophe that is possible and, and the possibility showing up there in, in a place where it, it really shouldn't be able to, um, is, is a beautiful thing. And yeah, I, I don't really know how else to, to re respond to the, that question, or at least that aspect of that question is, you know, where are we now? You know, um, in terms of well i feel yeah sorry go ahead no uh, go ahead go ahead uh, oh i just wanted to drill into specifically the omega point that Teilhard de chardin had anticipated how do you feel that is sitting with the current flux of our circumstances and travails i'm a big lover of de chardin his vision of the new sphere and omega point aligned with my own optimism and human potential in my 20s, but I find myself reflecting on his work and comparing it to our reality and wondering if it will ultimately unfold as he sensed it would. We seem to be at the brink of a collapse and also a breakthrough, implosion and transcendence in this tension. How does it sit for you? Do you feel dejected or do you sense that this is all going to shake out in our favor mm. i guess i guess i am i'm somewhere in the middle to be honest um i, I feel a sense of i between gebser and tehard and even orobindo uh when they commented on the, the 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 negative side of this process of cosmogenesis and, and and what could go wrong i think tehard is is the most optimistic of the three the most uh, the most embracing of the cosmic, yes, it's going to be okay. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. Things are going in that direction. It's irresistible. Um, Aurobindo, I think, mentioned in, in some of his later letters that like, oh, yeah, totally, you know, uh, life could go off, uh, die off the planet and um, the whole experiment of the earth and uh, the involutionary process and the evolutionary process, it could go all wrong. And it's even very possible. It's like a flip of the coin. But it'll continue elsewhere. And that is a kind of reckoning with that. I think it, it's it's not an it's not a pessimism and it's not an optimism. And I think being in the middle is 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 even harder, right? There's even more onus on us in that sense of like, okay, so maybe there is this omega, maybe there's there is this cosmogenesis that's occurring, but also maybe it's deeply tenuous and nothing is guaranteed, and that's actually what makes it um, uh, the, the, the creative triumph that it is when life is able to succeed in some way and overcoming some kind of catastrophe or, or potential crisis. But without that dire existential risk, um, th there's no point in, in attempting it here. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's a justification. I certainly don't feel that way. Like I take a kind of bodhisattvic Buddhist approach that like, I want to mitigate as much suffering as possible, right? So it's, it's a difficult question to wrestle with, just like with Jung and answer to answer to job Job is that sense of like, why is God doing this? Like, this could go all horribly wrong. Like, can you argue with the divine and say, like, help us out, you know, like, throw us a bone, throw us a miracle? Um, um, you know, have some kind of guarantor in all of this right um you know I, I think i think like 
one of the reasons why I've really appreciated, speaking of authors and, and high weirdness, like we mentioned earlier, Philip K. Dick, and his kind of internal theology, which was so wonderfully expressed in his uh, his novel, Ubik, um, this sense that, yeah, there's a lot of things that are wrong. Yeah, the universe is kind of falling apart. And yet, to borrow a, a phrase from his later works, there's this divine invasion. It's a very Gnostic mythos here, right? That that something steps in and attempts to intervene, that the universe is redemptive and creative somehow, um, or at least there's an attempt for it. So, but that that isn't that isn't an, um, a blind optimism, nor is it, I think, a, a cynicism that would deny that reality that there is some kind of uh, salvific or sacramental element to our participation in the cosmos. That suffering is here. But there is something at work, and no, it's not guaranteed. Um, it's a lot to hold, you know. It, it's a lot to be, as I said in the beginning of this little rant. It, it, there's a lot to feel both responsible for and deeply humble about. Like, okay, no promises, but we're not alone. But no promises, right? Like, it's hard to be there. It's kind of a naked place to be. Um, but that, that's sort of how I, I take it, especially with this, like, is it Kali Yuga or is it the Omega point? It seems to be, it seems to be both. It seems like this is, this is the, this is what Omega looks like, buddy. Like you asked to incarnate and, and evolve and, and figure shit out down here. Well, here you are, you know, like, um, so, but, but I want to also point out that the, Omega point is really interesting in a temporal sense in that it's, um, you know, Teilhard uses it as a kind of the metaphor for, for love, um, uh, gravity. It's, it's a kind of attractor, we might say, from, you know, uh, 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 complexity sciences. They talk about chaotic attractors and, and so forth. I think these are interesting metaphors to talk about it. Um, uh, I, I guess I would say what would increase our chances of it being Omega point is our our capacity to respond in kind to the challenges that we are faced with and it seems that in order to align better with this more realized future that doesn't end in our own you know planetary annihilation uh is a deepening sense of time right like if the omega point is this future attractor if the future has an imprint and an influence on the present, it would behoove our species to be able to begin inhabiting that form of time. And I, I would say this even like if we if we pull back from the paranormal for a moment and just see it in the in the cultural sense right now, um, everyone feels this. Everyone feels the Omega point as the Kali Yuga right now, right? There's like, all right, we got five months to figure out climate change. No one's working on it. So it's probably not going to be figured out. Oh, okay. All the timelines for, you know, global warming or, or, or the ice caps melting have all accelerated. They're much more, they're much quicker than we expected them to be. There's this looming sense that the, that there is something happening with the whole, right? There's anxiety about this whole process we're involved in on the planet the sort of meta perspective but it's like it's 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 intuitively felt is a felt sense of anxiety about everything breaking down and the future kind of looming in that sense but i think the future 
as anxiety, as Kali Yuga is also a teacher. It's it's a I'm borrowing this from um, a colleague of mine, Michelle Bowens. He calls he called this particular year with the pandemic a pedagogical catastrophe, in that it teaches us something, right? And I think this is important to think about when it comes to evolution: is that mistakes and crisis are ways to really learn something. And I think at this point, the, the the stakes are so high, they're so existential, that the kind of things that we have to learn are equally existential. And I do think that has to do with this time freedom Gebser talks about. Um, just as one final analogy that is very material in a sense, but also difficult, is still eluding so many of us, is a sense in which the climate crisis is a, is a crisis of temporics. It is not seeing the interconnected, influences flowing from the past into the present and flowing from the present into the future and back in the sense of well, think about carbon emissions like what we're dealing with now that shows up as a hurricane i'm in florida right so what shows up as a hurricane right now is entangled with you know um a a uh, a mining a mining company in 1846 and somewhere in the Midwest, you know, like the, the, the collective aggregate of everything we've done. And that goes deeper into time, the, the, the fossils and the fossil fuels, right? Billions, millions of years are all enwrapped in this crisis. And then every time, every day, every month that we don't work to affect the future, the future is being affected by us, right? So our ancestors are at work right now in the present, and our descendants are at work and what we're doing to them, right? In the sense if we will even have descendants, right? So this is what I mean about like, the deep sense of ontology of temporics that human beings need to learn, let alone, you know, time loops and, and the really like wondrous, bizarre, unsettling stuff that occurs in, at the fringes of, of so-called mundane reality. Um, we need to learn how to become time beings, the time beings that we are, right? We need to become effective time beings and not just unconsciously lolling about and and allowing whatever happened to happen like we're we're participating in that entangled sense of time as wholeness whether or not we realize it right so if we want this to be omega points um i think that's that's the the teaching crisis that needs to occur um and maybe also when it comes to the paranormal as well like that's part of the the terror and the teaching that occurs in like, hey, reality isn't what you think it is. Um, and you aren't what you think you are, especially in those sorts of moments. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, like, like I said, you, 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 you opened a very big question. That's so cool. This all evokes one of the stable themes in human contact with non-human entities which is this emphatic message that we are destroying our world. In fact, it may be as close to ubiquitous and unanimous as it gets in terms of messages from these beings to us. We are corroding reality for myriad entities that we're not even cognizant of. The havoc ripples into innumerable dimensions and beings, but the entities also talk out of both sides of their mouth, let's say. They could not be more interventionist when it comes to the human body. Humans have been violated in every imaginable manner, but ostensibly they don't exert an equivalent interventionist behavior when it comes to 
our climate crisis, for instance. In that case, it's up to us. I'm not stripping humans of accountability. Yes, we created this crisis, true. I'm just saying the behavior of these beings is apparently contradictory from what we have to call upon. They have decades to implement an intergenerational abduction and hybridization program, which is a colossus endeavor, but put the same effort into reversing ecological collapse and, oh, the difference they could make. Is their behavior rational? Is their behavior reasonable from what we can witness? And what's up with this disjunction? Can you speak to this paradox? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I've wondered about this too, in terms of um, how they show up. It's it's almost uh, it seems to have its own its own irrationality. You know, like I wouldn't even say it's irrational as we would understand it. It just it doesn't make waking sense. It, it makes a kind of dream sense that it would abduct Betty right from Nebraska. Um, it makes a kind of liminal sense that it, it's really in the nooks in the corners of, of the expected that something slips through. And it makes me wonder, like, just even ontologically, if, if, if these beings understand our world in the same material sense, like the kind of question that we're asking is like, why don't you show up to heads of state? Why don't you fly over the White House like that allegedly famous sighting happened in like the mid-century, right, um, uh, during the Cold War? Like, why don't you keep doing that? Why don't you start appearing over, you know, deforestation projects in the Amazon and abduct like the CEO of, a, of some like deforestation company, you know, and give him a conversion experience about the dire straits that we're in? Um why doesn't that occur? And I, I don't. I don't know if they they can interface with three dimensional waking material space in the same way that we do. Obviously, I mean they they can show up for sure materially. You know, they could make an effect. They 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 obviously can have some kind of physical um, manifestation. But I I don't know if that's if that really means they can do or even think the way we're thinking, they seem to be ontologically more. Um, and this is just my own opinion. Um, just having read, um, uh, really been influenced, I think, by by Valet's work and and Strieber's work, in the sense of like they are, they are from whatever dreams are made of, you know, and. And it raises questions because there's no there's no presumption on my part that they're only in dreams. Somehow dreams show up in the in the quote unquote real, right? That the real is more complex and entangled with the dream world and the imagination than we would suppose as as moderns. And maybe this is the only way they they can reach out. They can only reach out to Betty. Um, and I, I would find it. I find it interesting that at least that narrative has changed. Like I don't hear stories in the in, in you know, the famous airship flap um, in, in the 1800s of uh, of the denizens of these ships like warning people to stop using coal. You know, like they, they typically didn't. I don't, don't ever remember any cases of that particular narrative ever showing up. Um, or if we go back to like fairy lore, it's usually much more. Interestingly, the themes are the same, but they're much less dire and existential in their message, right? They are uh, 
They may be religious. They may be prophetic. They may be, you know, an apparition of the of of Mary saying, you know, go to, you know, the, the famous um, Mary of Guadalupe. Um, they may have a religious iconography about them, which I guess is similar, but there is no, you know, the, the world is going to end. You guys got to get your act straight, you know. <laughs> now there is, and I find that to be an interesting um, injection into the imagination of culture. Maybe the only way they can really influence this is through manipulating in that valetian sense the imagination of our culture, right? The, the, the social imaginary or the social unconscious of moderns, like that's where they're showing up. They're showing up on the, uh, you know, the paranormal radio shows and the folklore, right? That's always been their vein to show up in the folklore and the little guys and they're the little people, right? So I, I guess those are the themes I see as similar, uh, but I also see that as a kind of constraint um, and I, I've wondered about, especially the, the disclosure projects and everything, um, that I, I can't help have a sense of trepidation about what will ultimately be revealed. I think whatever the government has, this I mean, this is a presumption on my part, whatever the government may have with the military coming out more as it has recently, they probably don't even really understand I mean, do they have a spaceship? Do they have a UFO? Maybe they did for like five days. There was a craft in some hangar, you know, in Area 51. And then one day it just popped out of existence, you know, leaving like a few fragments that are really weird metals and no one can explain it. You know, or maybe like, because I think about some of these sightings and the way they happen sometimes, right? There's a kind of, again, dreamlike quality. Like they will persist as long as they do until they don't right? We'll keep showing up. We're going to like reveal this to you. Um, uh, we're putting implants in your body. We're going to give you this book for the, you know, the galactic invitation to cosmic federation on the 25th of May next year, show up on this mountain and nothing happens on that particular day, right? It just sort of pops out of existence, like waking up from the dream. And I, I find that dreamlike quality of these beings and these experiences simultaneously very real for as long as they are to be really fascinating. And I, I just, I guess I just don't know where this disclosure trajectory is leading, but in an indirect way, again, you know, if it's getting more people to be wary about the state of our existential place in the cosmos, like on earth, right? Then they're doing their job. <laughs> they're, they're interacting with us in the way they always have. And they're concerned in the ways they always have been. Um, but the, the ways in which they're concerned has changed. Like they've always been interested in food and sharing things with us and sexuality with us and reproduction questions, right? And you got those stories of the fairy that kidnap a, a housewife to help give uh, help a, um, a fairy woman give birth, you know, or maybe they steal our kid, right? Or switch our kid out with a changeling. So they're interested in the sexual, in the reproductive, in the cultural, in the dreaming erotic body of the human and they still seem to be interested in that um so i don't know that's my best shot at answering the unanswerable question of like what is going on with these things and why aren't they landing on the white house lawn to to, to warn everybody you know it's fascinating considering their deficiencies imagine the organization and resources required to spend even one century taking people 
extracting biological material, creating many iterations of hybrid beings, all clandestine, all beyond the purview or audit of human authority. Imagine trying to do something analogous on Earth, even without the dimensional hurdles. It's gargantuan, insurmountable. They shut down our nuclear weapons with impunity. But on the other hand, you know, they can do that, but (laughs) they can't or won't stop deforestation. Their craft crash, and then they can't retrieve them. They can't or won't redirect governing bodies of the world and their powers. That is unattainable to them. But they do find a way to take and implore individuals millions of times over and then saddle them with a sense of mission. So surfing multiple dimensions of time and space is not a hurdle for them, but the rest of this planetary crisis is out of reach. I have a really hard time reconciling these considerations. I grant legitimacy to all of it. The collapse is real. The beings are here. The experiencers are largely relating actual events, although permeated with high strangeness. There's just so many irreconcilable puzzles that we have no good answers for, and we're groping when it comes to so much of this. An integral approach, while providing no real solutions, is possibly a more satisfying way to live the questions. And that's one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on the show, to bring your great depth and inclusivity. So, to what degree are you public about all this stuff? Have you had to measure and guard how you participate publicly in these riddles? Have you experienced any fallout? Mm. Mostly not. Uh, But I think it's also because we frequent the countercultural institutions, right? So, uh, I've been floating the idea of applying to CIIS, right? The Philosophy of Religion program, PhD. That's over there. Um, Gepser himself, even though he's been legitimized in academia in a secular sense through uh, communications work in the field of communications, he's he's very much a contemplative in what he's talking about in his works. So, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm kind of hovering there um, between going into the weird or deep diving into the weird too much and also really wanting to speak to the cultural phenomenology of the present day and folks who may not be entirely comfortable going this far, right? Um, so like, like I think we mentioned earlier, thresholds are very interesting for me. And I like this threshold. I think, um, I think there's enough discussion in the public sphere about it, especially recently, um, and enough legitimization within academia when it comes to the post-human um, and the idea of, of stepping out of particular ontologies and worldviews that should no longer be or don't need to be the center anymore in terms of secularity, um, but are in relationship with it. So. I think, you know, Jeffrey Kripal's work is really great. And of course, he's got tenure, right? So he could say what he wants. But I think he's, you know, I think those kinds of interesting straddlers between uh, secular critical thinking that is, that is you know, deeply skeptical and then also uh, um, a radical openness to opening those doors is, is a really good place to be. 
and I find fulfillment of being in those spaces. So I guess I haven't really had too much backlash myself. Now, if I was trying to go down a more secular route for my career, maybe that would be a problem, right? Um, but I, I don't see myself necessarily needing to do that. And even seeing the counterculture, let's say like Terrence McKenna and high weirdness and all that stuff, all that stuff is like, it's always this kind of seductive other that the so-called popular culture is very interested in, right? So there's always a kind of dance between the two. It's encouraging to hear that. But then part of my brain draws a line between John Mack and Jeff Kripal. And I feel John Mack had tenure too. Mm-hmm. He faced a shitstorm. Yes, he did. He nearly lost everything. Now we look at you and Jeff Kripal and Phil Ford and the various academics who are on this edge. And I think maybe John Mack had a tougher time of it because he was in psychiatry and it was Harvard. Maybe it would be more favorable for him today. Perhaps the tectonic plates of this realm are slowly moving. But to turn to disclosure, there's past few years we've seen the New York Times, the Navy, and so forth coming forward into a new posture. And I'm not knocking it. I'm excited to see Navy pilots sharing on Joe Rogan. I'm also finding myself analyzing each of these chess moves, so to speak, and wondering what are the human motivations behind them. So disclosure is by humans for humans. Yeah. I don't know if Harvard's ready for it yet. Yeah. The entities are getting what they want, how they want it, when they want it. So what's your take on this advent of trickling disclosure? I have like talked with my friends about this so much. Um, We don't have any, I don't think there's really any convincing theories that, that, that lean one way or another um, that, that go along with this idea that, okay, this is some kind of ET human collaboration where we're being warmed up to the idea of contact. Um, There are many, there are many, there could be many reasons though. Um, One could simply be a a, a saturation point and a change in attitude uh, just in terms of like, you know, being able to see stuff like this all the time. You know, people are capturing weird phenomena, aerial phenomena in the skies all the time um, with the proliferation, saturation of, of, of digital technology. So I wonder if, it, if it's always kind of been in the cards to kind of drop this as a, as a way to kind of disempower the conspiracy about, you know, a conspiracy, if that makes sense, right? Like, yeah. we all think there's some great cover up. Maybe there isn't. Maybe they don't know what's going on. Mm. And maybe it would just serve them better to just kind of go, like some governments have done, like, uh, um, I don't have any concrete examples, but I just know that, you know, other states, other countries have had different relationships with the phenomena and just outwardly Brazil, saying, like, hey, Argentina. Yeah, we don't know what this is. We don't know. It's in the sky. Um, I don't know what changed internally, though. I don't know if there there has been a change in the cards. I don't know if this has to do with some kind of um, uh, directing public attention towards something almost Jungian, 
right now because Jung had that thesis about UFOs and that that great little book he wrote that that, that they're almost a kind of um, uh, uh, projection of psychic wholeness, right? He says they look like mandalas. Mandala is the image of the self and the psyche and that during times perhaps of deep rifts cultural fragmentation and crisis, um, what appears are, are, are these beings, the, the experiences with these beings, et cetera. Maybe the government is, military is, is, is sort of playing into that a little bit to try to stem the, um, well, the cultural breakdown that we see happening right now in the United States everywhere. It doesn't seem to be helping, right? People seem to be kind of going like, oh, UFOs are real, I guess. That, that's not that's not a surprise. It's 2020. Like, <laughs> like I feel like that was the reaction. And that was even the joke before this started to happen. Like, okay, UFOs are going to land at the end of 2020 or something. Uh, you know, so there's like a sense of reality breaking down. But then I think also there's this maybe a, a, just a change in, in the internal culture of the military to just sort of either use this again to help assuage the deep cultural fragmentation that's occurring and anxiety um, and, and just to have a more transparent relationship about what these things are, which is we don't know, um, or something more nefarious. Uh, you know, I'm not going to discount that either. What is this all a ploy to just get the, the freaking uh, um, uh, Star, Star Trek, Star Wars space program more funding, you know, like, Oh, yeah. hey, or a just, human false flag. Yeah, why don't we just say like, hey, you know, we got all this data about weird stuff in the sky and maybe this will actually increase our funding and, and, and public reception and, and encouragement of developing the space program and building more weapons. So or, yeah, manufacturing something. So I won't discount that either. You know, like the Space Force was just created a few years ago as well. So it could just be using a weird phenomenon that is real to just get the money that they need to build a, you know, <laughs> that ridiculous space force. Um, you know, even like Reagan was, was kind of using that, you know, an outside force could be coming in. Why don't we build the star Wars program? So there could be military reasons, uh, optics reasons, funding reasons by, uh, uh, you know, military developers. Um, <laughs> that's the most like not really fun reason, but it's almost one that I keep right. thinking of. Yeah. Right. But crazy not to consider all these frames. There's an animating force for each of these perspectives. I have empathy for any human being from any part of the government or military that has recovered anything or knows something. There are no good responses at present that we know of to any of these planetary conundrums. The incommensurate dynamic is stupefying. So with no good choices, what do you choose? Secrecy, control the narrative, stall, distract, etc. I wouldn't want that job. I wouldn't want that burden. Maybe we've obtained some parity over the last 70 years, but how much? How far? Yeah. It's a terrible position to be in if you're in charge of protecting other human beings. These non-human entities have operated with impunity right. for right. as long as we've been aware of them. And that creates a situation where... It the the transparency that they would have to have would be okay um reality is really weird and we are not in control of it not in an existential sense not in an ontological sense and not even in a military sense you know like that the zone that that, that jf martel talks about um fantastically and it's a subject i'm very interested in as well these these 
eruptions of the weird uh, can occur anywhere and everywhere and continue to occur. And to admit that, to really become transparent about that is to ultimately give up the paradigm that we have in terms of, you know, okay, material existence is, you know, the only thing that's real. And these things, this is the other side of it. If these are not purely technological material existing in three-dimensional space beings like we are, then that's like another admittance. Like these things are real, but we don't know how, in what way that they're real, but they're really real. Right. Um, and they're, they're not, it's not just a case of a down spacecraft from another star system. It's something we can't even fathom. We don't have an ontology for it. Right. I, I mean, exactly. Yeah. That's the wild card. Yeah. It's the primary unworkable feature of any genuine disclosure. You can't put the high strangeness toothpaste back in the tube. What are human authorities to do with the mindfuck of the transrational registers of the phenomena? How these entities traverse states, time, dimensions, in a fashion we have no architecture for. There's no transrational house for us to move into. It just doesn't exist for us yet. We live in a rational house. We have transrational visitors. So delay, divert, distract, distort. I can completely understand that strategy. It's just the best of terrible options available to us. Yeah. I mean, what could be to be transparent about it? Like what, what would the good be for, you know, uh, a Cold War era uh, military program trying to maintain its own hegemony over public consciousness and, and optics, you know, like to, to, to admit that level of vulnerability, that would require <laughs> the other side to do the same, you know, mutually dis mutual disarmament of, of, uh, control <laughs> was not in the cards, I think for, for either the Soviets or, or, uh, the United States in that time. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's an attitude. It may no longer be founded. I definitely think it isn't well-founded anymore, but it's understandable in terms of why they would go that route to delay, to misinform, to keep it quiet, um, to threaten even like maybe we do have technology. You know, what does that say about our military pro prowess over other countries, right? So there's many reasons to keep it a secret and to obfuscate its real its weirdness, you know? So that that for me, the real disclosure would be an ontological one. Like we don't know what they are. They are absolutely real in a way that we cannot fathom. And, um, you know, they interface with the material in a way that is material, but is also not. And it raises, it, it breaks open the perspective of world, right? It breaks open the mental world. Um, I, 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 this year in 2020, anything's possible. And I would, I would welcome that disclosure. Um, that's the kind of disclosure that I would expect, but I could be wrong. I'd be happily wrong if, if, you know, they're, they're literally have like a mothership hovering around the earth right now, a city from serious, from, from the serious star system that's ready to welcome us into a, a material galactic federation like we've seen in science fiction. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't complain about that either. I just Or all of the above. Yeah, it could be. It could be. By the way, but, you need to trademark ontological disclosure. <laughs> that's the shit. As obvious as it seems when you hear it, I've never heard it before. Yeah. Trademark that. <laughs> Maybe you could call this episode that, but... Uh, 
One of the more unworkable aspects of contact is that it's very hard to simply be in the presence of some of these beings. Why? Frequency, dimension, bandwidth, I don't know. But it's taxing on our somatic, cognitive, emotional being. There's a simple dissonance. That's what I love about ontological disclosure, is try to imagine a world where you cohabitate with eight-foot manted beings. Their very presence warps the room and creates discontinuity. Maybe hybrids are a possible bridge in the future, but in a large sense, these beings can't stay here and we can't stay there with them. When humans and non-humans do come together, there's an ephemeral quality to it, as though an unstable transience inheres in the mutuality. Maybe that's immutable. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I think whatever they are, uh, this reminds me of, um, to, to close, because uh, I, I should probably run now, but I, I wanted to leave the word that I think Kripal uses, and maybe maybe Frederick Myers in the context of, of uh, talking about uh, the imaginal, uh, amphibious, right? That we are amphibious beings, uh, and that these things are from the other side of things, right? We can interface with them, but we're, we're kind of more on the shore and they're kind of more in the ocean. Um, we can meet in these liminal spaces, but I, I, I don't think it's the nature of those spaces to, um, to completely overtake waking life. Um, they have a role, a symbiotic role to play and will always play. Um, maybe they are, like Kripal says, what evolution looks like from the inside, you know, in terms of what they're working on with us, these narratives of reproduction, um, evolution, uh, et cetera, which has always been kind of one of the themes of these types of beings and, and these sorts of encounters. So it's a great mystery. And I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of it, Stu, but uh, I love talking about it with you. For more information on Jeremy D. Johnson, check the show notes. Intergalactic Omniphonics. That's what experimental philosopher Jonathan Keats calls his project, designed to bring sentient beings together through music. His uniquely constructed instruments are engineered to be accessible to aliens, anticipating and accounting for the fact that their sensory interface may be completely divergent from humans. Toward this end, He's written music intended to be a universal anthem. The instruments include an ultrasonic organ consisting of an array of dog whistles. Also, an assembly of bells which emit gamma rays. And a cell that sounds out gravitational waves, which travel at the speed of light. Said Keats of Intergalactic Omniphonics, quote, I'm trying to make something that's more universal and more inclusive, something that's not only about us, but also has the connection that we have to them, whoever they are." End quote. For more information on Jonathan Keats, check the show notes. This week I'm excited to announce a very unique and amazing new project that I think will be particularly meaningful to listeners of Aliens and Artists a new site called The Experiencer Group. 
This site was created expressly to provide support and community for people who've had anomalous experiences of all kinds. We've just now opened our doors to people around the world. The Experiencer Group provides a gathering place for those who've undergone abduction, contact with non-human entities, poltergeists, ghosts, precognition, near-death experiences, missing time, UAPs, UFOs, out-of-body events, contact with the dead, and much more. The site was created to put people in contact with others who've had similar life events. Within the structure of the site, members can join groups specific to their interests and history, and have private conversations with like-minded folks. Members can also join support groups which gather from all over the world to meet via Zoom. Our robust menu of offerings includes a dedicated Discord, topic-specific curated groups, and careful attention to protocols on conduct. This is a protected space, an oasis, and also an environment for deep healing and study. In addition to direct access from other people around the world who've had these anomalous life events, we will offer videos, audio content, members' own extraordinary accounts, special guests, and much more. The Experiencer Group is a subscription site, but enter the code Aliens and Artists and you'll get a month free. To our knowledge, there's not another site like this anywhere, and we created the Experiencer Group because we saw the need for it again and again in those we know and love personally. Help us build a positive, anomalous culture. These enigmas and those who live with them need more love, support, and resources. It's time to end the stigma. We hope you'll join us. Click the link in the show notes to discover the Experiencer Group member site.
cheers Ribbon against rainbow Loads a planet Into a crossbow I shake the 